Happy Sunday, my lovely congregation, and welcome back to Pillow Talk, the interview series of Pussy Church, where I call some of my favorite erotic creators. I'm Laura, an erotic writer and the creator of Tales of Laura, which you can find at talesoflaura.com and at Tales of Laura on Instagram. And today I'm checking in with Janet Hardy, a sex educator and the author of the famed book, The Ethical Slut, among many others. We chatted about how she and her co-author, Dossie Easton, wrote the OG Bible of polyamory, what ethical non-monogamy means in theory and in practice, and we answered some of your questions regarding the topic as well. Also, we just dropped new merchandise in the shop. Go to talesoflaura.com and check out vintage erotic magazines, a new dick shirt, and my favorite and amazing vintage vape lighter I found in L.A. A little tip, when you sign up for my newsletter, you can get 10% off your first order, too. Okay, now, let's dive in. Amen. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Pillow Talk, the special interview edition of Pussy Church, where I talk to some of my favorite creators. And today I'm here with Janet Hardy, an American writer and sex educator and the author of over 12 books, including The Ethical Slut. Thank you so much for joining me today. A pleasure. Really? I mean, I'm so excited. Your book, The Ethical Slot, is obviously a wildly known and renowned book about polyamory. Mm-hmm. And uh, we were just talking about this. It's been in print for over 20 years, right? Absolutely. The first edition was in 1997. This is so crazy to me because I feel like I'm obviously a little younger in, in 1997. Yeah. I was pretty, I was a kid. But to to imagine right now like how now polyamory is something that we talk about a lot and that is um or at least the space i work in or we both work in seems yeah. to be so much it, more a household name i guess yeah it's a lot more recognized and understood a lot more than it was back in the day yeah and so then i had to tell people what i meant when i said polyamory i can't think of the last time i had to explain it now that is so funny yeah how did this even like happen um how did you get started in this space Dossie and I my my co-author Dossie and I had already written two books together about BDSM Mm -hmm. and we were speaking at of all places a Mensa event um oh really yeah 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 and it was like a basic BDSM class uh but wait what, what were you teaching oh it was an introduction to BDSM I think we, okay. we, had, we had aimed for something a little more high-end than that, but as soon as we started talking to the group, it was clear that they were beginners and that we needed to crank it down to beginner level. So it was a beginning SM class. Um, Ease them into the topic. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, but that night there was a hot tub event and I was on my way down to the hot tubs and I ran into a friend of mine who was on her way back up from the hot tubs. Mm-hmm. Um, and she said, you should have heard the conversation in my hot tub. Okay, I'll I'll bite what was the conversation in your hot tub. And she said it was, did you hear about that S&M workshop this morning? There were these two women doing it and they were talking about stuff they had done together. And one of their boyfriends was right in the room. (laughs) (laughs) That was when we realized, you know, we thought we had already written our outrageous books, our, our kink books. But it turned out, somewhat to our surprise, that people were a lot more agitated about 
non-monogamy than they were about kink. I think maybe because if, if you're not kinky, then, you know, you just sort of go, oh, kink, yeah, that's what those other people do. And you don't mm-hmm. need to think about it. But everybody needs to think about how they should their relationships. Yes. Uh, so it's, it's not a thing that you can just sort of say, oh, yeah, that's for those weirdos. It's, it's a thing that gets right up in your face and asks, it confronts you uh, in, to discuss and think about what you want your relationships to be. Yeah. And so that's a lot confrontational. I mean, for yourself, um, were you in a monogamous relationship? And then how was that process of you opening that one up? Um, by getting divorced. <laughs> my, my, first, my first marriage was, what, what kind of happened, we met when we were in college. And at the time, I was being a busy little slut. He was kind of new to sex, but I wasn't. And then we moved in together. And we just sort of defaulted to monogamy. We never talked about it. Yeah. Um, which is kind of the way a lot of people do it. I think so, and, for sure. You know, fast forward 10 years and I wake up one morning going, hey, wait, <laughs> this, this is not feeding me. This is not the way I want my life to be. It was mostly because I was, you know, deep down in my bones, a kinky person. And mm-hmm. he, bless his heart, we're still good friends, but he's not. Um, and so the... We, I think if a book like The Ethical Slut had existed back then, there's a fair chance we might still be together, but it didn't. And the only way we knew to handle this huge difference between us was to split. Um, Mm. And it was as amicable as such things can be. It was, you know, conscious uncoupling or whatever it was. Um, And, you know, we had joint custody of the kids and we went on having dinner together a couple times a week as we handed them back and forth. And so we were able to maintain a a friendship uh, throughout all that, which is great. I still love him deeply and hope that things are wonderful for him. Um, And and once that was done, once we split, I was just quite sure I was not going to be monogamous again. That was not I was, I was not going to default to anything without talking about it. And I was not going to relinquish the right to have sex and have love where I felt it yeah. uh, to anybody. It's interesting to me because how without, I think now there's so much information out there, right? For, for couples. I mean, your book, obviously, and, and others, um, where people can read up on these ideas and how to ethically do it, right? Yeah. With your partner. Yeah. So how did you figure that out for yourself, right? Like how did you start navigating that with partners? Well, um, in Dossie's case, she is, she's 11 years older than I am. So she's 77 now, mm-hmm. uh, which puts her squarely in the free love generation. Yeah. Um, and so she learned a lot of those skills back when she was a hippie. Mm-hmm. Um, I came along a little longer, although, you know, I went to UC Santa Cruz, so it wasn't like there were no hippies at UC Santa Cruz. There are still hippies at UC Santa Cruz. I just want to say, I think yeah. they're still there. <laughs> and they never left. Um, but I think it's also significant that for both Dossie and me, our relationships with gay men have been really, really important parts of our lives. Mm-hmm. And so we learned a lot of our slut skills from our gay male friends who have been doing it for a lot longer than straight people have. Yes. I think it's so funny. I just had talked to two people about this um, on this podcast to that straight people should kind of like take a look at the way yeah. a lot of gay people communicate with each other about sexuality. Yeah. And, and a lot of other subtler 
distinctions between queer communities and straight communities that have to mm -hmm. do with um, recognizing all the different ways we form relationship and that the lifelong monogamous couple till death do us part model um, is not actually a very good fit for very many people. And what we tend to do is to form little clusters of friends and lovers and lovers' friends and friends' lovers and kids and siblings and all the people that come into our lives and to value all of those as people we love. Yeah. It, it's just a real paradigm shift about relationships that I think queers have gotten a lot farther with than straight. For I think it's I think it's actually interesting too regarding even BDSM, like you said about kink, that the communication there is also so much more open. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's coincidence that we see so much more non-monogamy in kink communities or mm -hmm. really in any alt-sex community because um, I, I teach an occasional workshop called uh, What Everyone Can, Can Learn From Polyamory. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the key points in that workshop is not taking things for granted, not assuming yes. that you know what the other person means when they say monogamy, non-monogamy, relationship anarchy, whatever terms they like to put on mm -hmm. how they want to relate. Um, I think one of the best questions in the world is, what do you mean by that? Yes. Um, yeah, because we assume so much, right, from our partners. Yeah, we like do. Yeah. In the very first workshop Dossie and I ever taught together on this, which was back when we were just beginning to put the book idea together. And we often start by having a workshop or two so that we can find out what people want to know. And mm -hmm. so we were we were giving this workshop to a, a group of kinky people. And mm -hmm. I opened by saying, just so we know who we're talking to, could anybody in the audience who's in a monogamous relationship please raise their hand? And two hands went up in a room full of maybe 35 people. Mm -hmm. One of them belonged to a woman in whose cunt I had had my personal fist the night before. So, you know, <laughs> I, I was not going to say anything in front of an audience, but <laughs> afterward I took her aside and said, so monogamy, huh? And she said to her and her partner, monogamy meant that they only had PV intercourse with one another, but everything else was on the table. Ah, okay. Well, that's also a very different version. Yeah, of Yeah, exactly. So even if you even if you guys decide, you whoever you're in a relationship decide to be monogamous, you still have to talk. Saying I'm monogamous does not end the discussion. Absolutely. But and in in that sense, though, I mean, because you said what everybody can learn from polyamory, it also being obviously a, a choice. If you make the choice consciously to be monogamous, whatever that means to you, right? And if that feels good with that certain partner, these things are also fine as long as we communicate, Yeah, I would think. Yeah, exactly. Um, if you look at how many marriages or, or partnerships end over infidelity, start looking at what the triggering event was. And often it will be that person A, thought they were being monogamous and person B didn't because they had different standards for monogamy. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, the kinds of things where someone's having phone sex or, or cyber sex. Yeah. Um, for some people, that would be a breach of a monogamous agreement and for other people, it isn't. And you yes. got to get clear on that stuff. I mean, I think it's also interesting, this thought of, even if you're a serial monogamist, right? Yeah. <laughs> that you're still in some kind of a sense a polyamorous. <laughs> I've met few serious uh, serial monogamists who don't have some overlap between partners. 
-hmm. And it's interesting to me that we call them monogamists when they're equally well serial poly people. Yeah. Because there's a time in their lives when they're moving from one partner to the next when they are sleeping with two people. And it Mm -hmm. may not be the most um, honest form of polyamory, but it's not monogamy by my standards. Yes. Um, And all of this needs to be thought about a lot more than it has been. Yeah. So what's what's the ethical part of um, of your book or of that concept? Is that just communication? How would you describe it? Um, I have a basic standard that cheating happens anytime you don't want to tell your partner about something you've done. If you feel like you need to lie about something you've done, mm-hmm. then that's cheating. And I don't care whether it's that you snuck a cigarette that day or that you've been fucking the entire office. It's still, <laughs> it's still cheating. Um, so if you want to know if you're being ethical in your relationships, take a look at what truths you feel safe about telling. Mm. And that's going to give you a pretty clear idea. Yeah. That's interesting as a, that's kind of a paradigm shift, right? Because if you think about um, being ethical on the, like even the cigarette example, right? If you don't feel comfortable sharing that with your partner, what does that say about your relationship you're having? Yeah, exactly. Um, And I think I'm assuming that a lot of people do that because they're afraid, right? Of not being accepted or something. Absolutely. Well, I am, both Dossie and I are conflict avoidant to a fault. And so this is not some, this is something we have to be very conscious about. Mm-hmm. Me it, too. I know that feeling. <laughs> yeah. 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 And my spouse is the same. My, my previous partner was not, and I learned a lot from him about mm-hmm. um, managing conflict because he was someone who was much, much more willing to speak up when mm-hmm. there was a conflict. And I would, tend to repress my resentment until it boiled over, which is a bad habit. And I've, you know, that's, that's the story of my life is trying to overcome that habit. I know that habit. I wonder, do you think it has something to do also with our society and about being like raised as a woman, I guess, in this society? I I would think so more were it not that I married to a bio guy who is the same way. I think Mm -hmm. a lot of it has to do with ethnicity. Um, Oh, interesting. Okay. Some of it has to do with gender. Some of it has to do with trauma history. Mm-hmm. If yes. you grew up in a place where you got hit for speaking up, then you're going to learn pretty fast not to speak up. Yeah. <laughs> so, yes. you know, it, it's not as simple as gender, although yes. gender does play a role. Mm. Yeah. And it's interesting because I think there is something I've, I've noticed this um, within my relationships. If you start spe- speaking up, right? There's yeah. this potential of getting so much closer and more intimate with your partner. And I'm not talking yes. sexually. I mean, sexually speaking will always happen because of their emotional intimacy, I feel like. Um, not Well, a thing we haven't talked about yet is that I have been functionally celibate for almost two decades now. <gasps> oh, so, really? Yes. I didn't yes, yes. know that. Ah, I, I, I came out with that. Oh, God, 10 or 15 years back, I I did an article on Salon.com about the circumstances that led to that. Um, So I I don't want to frame any of this as being necessarily sexual, because for me, it isn't Mm. anymore. Um, I still do a very occasional kink, mostly when I'm lucky enough to be near an old dear friend that I've played with for years. It's a chance to reconnect in that way. I've not had genital intercourse 
since my last partner and I broke up. So that's 20 years plus. Um, wow. And I don't miss it much. Oh, really? I, yeah. Wait, but um, you have other sexual, I mean, if you don't mind me asking, like no, other. I still masturbate occasionally. Um, mm-hmm. my, my libido is not what it was. I'm 66. I'm postmenopausal. You know, the, yeah. some people go on being sexual well into old age. I don't happen to be one of them. Yeah. Um, when Dossie and I were working on our book, Radical Ecstasy, which is a, about um, transcendent and ex- ecstatic experiences during kink, mm-hmm. um, we took some Tantra together yeah. and I learned how to do full body orgasms basically at will. Um, oh my God, that's incredible. Well, it's it's not as difficult <laughs> as it sounds. <laughs> oh, really? I didn't find it so. Um, I do think that people who have been doing kink for years are better at it because they don't call it raising Kundalini, but it's the same thing. So not only the two of us turned out to be very easy and gifted at at Tantra, but whenever we brought our kink friends along with us to uh, group activities, they turned out to be good at it too. Do you think that's just because um, you've dealt with your desire and and lust and your body in a different way you've paid more attention to it i there is part of that you know i i had a very long and very intense journey and i kind of feel i reached the end of that journey and Mm. uh, um a lot of my mission these days is to be the person who did take the journey and came back to tell what happened Mm -hmm. to other people who might want to take the journey too uh, which I want to tell them about the risks as as well as the rewards, and I, I spend a lot of my time doing that these days. Um, what um, what do you think are the risks and rewards? Well, this is a very long story being made very short. Um, <laughs> I'm sure. Yeah, there, it, anybody who hears this and wants the full story, if you enter Janet Hardy Tantra into your search engine, you'll find the article I wrote that. Um, that describes this whole process. Mm-hmm. But long story short, um, Dossie and I were doing a Tantra weekend uh, with our teacher. And we'd been practicing with each other and with other women uh, for two days, Friday into Saturday. Okay, So it was Saturday, women only? Women only, yes. Mm-hmm. We went to several mixed gender things there as well, but the most, most of them, our, our teacher preferred to work with women. A lot of, a lot of Western Neo-Tantra is very gendered in ways that was that are uncomfortable for her and for us. Um, So yes, all women. And here it is Saturday night. We've been raising energy for two days and we're doing the last exercise of the night. And Dossie and I are sitting in yab yum, which is the position where you're sitting in each other's laps with your legs crossed behind your partner's hips. Mm -hmm. Got it, okay. And we're breathing together and raising energy. And all of a sudden without any volition on my part, I tip over backwards and find myself arching off the floor, supported only by my head and feet, shrieking like a fire whistle. Dossie did not see what was happening in time. So she's riding me like a bronc because she couldn't get off. Um, And it was overwhelming. I Mm. thought I was going to die. And I, I couldn't remember how to stop. I did eventually stop because bodies know the way back on their own. Yeah. But um, it was terrifying. Mm. And because we were working on a book deadline, I did not do what my instincts were telling me to do, which is just to cool it and not do Tantra and not do BDSM and not do 
sex for a while while I figured out what was what. So I plunged right back into it. And as a result, for quite a few years after that, um, I could not do anything that was not up in my intellect. I couldn't run a scan of my body um, without going into an orgasmic state. And I was having them in very inappropriate contexts, like oh, really? gym classes and <laughs> supermarkets. Um, and, and you couldn't so, stop it. it. Would it just come on by itself? It. Yeah. yeah. Out of nowhere, um, you, weren't, you weren't triggered by something or you, at least consciously. Not consciously, no. Yeah. Um, the, the, the Tantra term for what happened to me is called a Kundalini awakening. Mm, they are, yeah. they are not rare. Um, some people recover better than I did. Some people recover worse than I did. For some people, it's truly debilitating. But that, that was, you know, that was why I wrote the Solana article, which was, I think, the most difficult coming out I've ever done. Mm. Um, Interesting, huh? But, After all the ways of coming yeah, out and this and, one is the uh, difficult one. After all these years coming out is not not having sex turned out to be the hard one. After <laughs> all these years coming out into different kinds of sexual behaviors. Mm -hmm. um, but I thought I had lost my career when when I wrote that article. I thought who's going to want to hire someone who doesn't have sex anymore to write about sex. And it turns out a lot of people do. A lot yes. of people really wanted to hear about that journey. But that was what happened to me. And so for like a decade after that, I just didn't do any of that. Mm -hmm. um, what enabled me to start getting a handle on things again was, you know, Eugene, where I live, is a town full of old hippies, which I love, mm -hmm. which means that pre-COVID, there were several ecstatic dance events here every week. Um, and it turned out that dancing was what helped me get back into my body. Mm. It was an environment where everyone was making a lot of noise. Everyone was moving their body in sexy ways. And so nobody was noticing if I was over in the corner pulling up energy and pushing it back down and pulling it up and pushing it back down and finally letting it out with a big roar because everybody was roaring. <laughs> um, and it was a chance to, you know, it's, it's an embodied spiritual practice in the same way yeah. BDSM is, in the same way Tantra is. And that was how I got my sexuality back, mm. um, which was great. And it's nice to know that I'm not taking risks anymore anytime I engage in my body. Um, yeah. But I also found after 10 years of doing without that, I was not in a huge hurry to go back. Mm -hmm. I was kind of done. Um, so it's not like I can't have sex anymore. I mean, physiologically, if I wanted to have um, insertion, in, insertional sex, um, I would have to do some practicing first because when you're menopausal, things kind of shut down and need a little help opening up again. Um, mm -hmm. But I could, and someday maybe I will, but probably not this week. And that's about as far as I'm willing to take it. Yeah, but I mean, I think that's part of um, all of what we're talking about is a bit of about listening to yourself and to your needs and to your body, right? Exactly. Yeah. Whereas, I mean, I think that about sexual emancipation all the time, and I think that that also is a little bit misunderstood by a lot of people, even when we use the term slut, you know? Yeah. Um, the idea that that means you have to have a lot of sex and then you're emancipated sexually. I think it's yeah. really more about you have to be willing to engage with yourself in a very intimate way and to listen yeah. to your needs. And if that's no sex for two decades, you're sexually emancipated, right? And yeah, in exactly. When I, I was teaching uh, a couple of years ago at a, an event on the East Coast for queer Ivy League students, 
And it was a bunch of different workshops and panel discussions and so on. And I, you know, just to kill a little time till I went on, I went over and sat in on a panel discussion of asexuality. And mm. I was stunned by how many of their talking points were exactly the same talking points we hit on in Ethical Slut. Is that um, interesting? Valuing valuing relationships for what's valuable in them, not assuming that sex makes one relationship more valuable than another. Mm. Um, you know, all, all of our stuff, it was just being approached from a different angle, but it was really eye-opening for me to listen. Everybody there was younger than me. Um, and they had some really fascinating viewpoints about their lives as asexuals. Yeah, I mean, I think that's all, I mean, I'm not asexual. Um, and I feel like, but that's that's probably an interesting part of it in general that I really enjoy my sexuality, right? And I, I've also did some tantra, and like I'm really interested in it. And obviously, it's my job, you know, <laughs> a little yeah. bit like yours. <laughs> so yeah. because it has so many different aspects to it at this point, right? It's not always a turn on. It's sometimes just spiritually fascinating. Sometimes it's intellectually engaging. Or we're talking to people like you, I mean, who have so much knowledge. It's just I'm curious and like a little child about the yeah, topic. Yeah. But but asexuality has always been a more difficult thing for me to imagine in that realm. Yeah, it's um, it certainly wasn't something I would have understood until I sort of became one. I don't identify as asexual these days. I identify as celibate because I, I do still have a sex drive. Yeah. I do not feel a particular need to engage it with other humans. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm happy to be sexual in my head, but there, there is still definitely a drive there. Um, and I do think asexuals have a lot to teach, even people who do not feel asexual. Mm -hmm. I, I think they're onto some really good stuff. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, going back to the ethical slut, because you said points that were made and I'm kind of interested in how the reaction was when you guys first or when you first published the first edition right the the book in, in the yeah, late 90s yeah. how were people reacting to different points of it and um the positive and the negative I guess yeah I found it fascinating when I was speaking to um mainstream groups I, I remember one of the it was a writing event I think and everybody stood up and talked about the project that they were working on. And it was while I was working on slut. And so I, when I described, you know, it's a book about how to have m multiple relationships in an honest and ethical way. Mm -hmm. um, afterwards, I was chatting with a woman who had been there and she said, well, I don't think that's right. And I said, okay, yeah, I'm fine with that. Well, why, why isn't it? <laughs> and she said, well, because it's, it's, it's lying, it's betrayal. And I said, you, you did hear the part where I said honest and ethical, right? <laughs> but, you know, for a lot of people, they hit the point of non-monogamy and they just couldn't imagine what that would look like doing yes. it ethically. Um, they, they just sort of short-circuited at that point. And so that happened a lot. Yeah. And even when people got what we were talking about, there was a, a lot more hostility about it then than there is now. Yes, I imagine. I mean, it's threatening to a lot of people, right? Yeah. Um, that that concept of giving your partner that freedom and trusting that they still will choose you as well. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I remember after we, we did a radio talk show and a woman called in and was really hostile toward us. And, um, and I was thinking about it afterwards. When someone's like that, I try to do sort of a little compassion scan um, to try to figure out what makes them the way they are. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about it, thinking, well, hell, she sounded on the phone like she might be in her 50s or 60s. And if I had gotten to that point in my life, and I'd been monogamous the whole time, not because I wanted to, but because people had told me that I had to be. Yes. And then these ladies come on, the, they wouldn't call us ladies, <laughs> these people <laughs> come on the radio and tell me I don't have to be, I'd be fucking furious. Mm-hmm. And I probably would not be furious at the people who had told me I had to be monogamous. I would be furious at the ladies on the radio. Um, yeah. And I think there was a lot of that. The people who are, who were and are unhappy in monogamous relationships that they never really chose to be monogamous, um, being confronted with the fact that they maybe never had to be. Yeah. Um, it's going to take a pretty evolved person to take that in um, and let it simmer instead of yes. getting angry about it. I mean, what would you say? Um, so I had some um, listeners writing questions too, but I mean, one person or several people were kind of asking about how do you get started? Like, is it for everybody? Like, how would you rec- or what would you recommend would be some steps to take for somebody who might be interested in having a different kind of relationship? Uh, okay. Uh, first question, is it for everybody? No, it's not. <laughs> um, it, you know, it, there is no sexual or relationship pattern that, that's good for everybody. Yes. Uh, relationships are hard. Being, mm-hmm. being alone is hard, too. You just get to choose which, which kind of hard you want mm-hmm. um, and do your best with it and stay flexible. In terms of exploring opening a relationship, which is... There's different stuff to say about being a poly single person, which is not easy either. But Mm. what I'm hearing is that people want to talk about opening existing relationships. Yes, which Um, is probably a difficult one, more so than getting into one that from the beginning on is polyamorous. Well, yes and no. It's not easy to be on the dating scene with this behind you. People, Mm. you know, finding people who will not run a mile when when you tell them that you're poly um, or think that you're an abuser or a lothario or whatever it is people think about people like us. Mm-hmm. Um, but in terms of being in an existing relationship and wanting to open it, uh, at some point you have to talk. <laughs> yeah. Know, oh, yeah. <laughs> it, it's just not going to work if you don't sit down together. So pick a time that is not fraught. After you've just finished having sex is not a good time. After you've had a fight or during a fight is not a good time. Um, an excellent idea in relationships, which I can't say I'm doing, but I, I think it's a really good one, is to set aside a little time each week um, for, I met one couple who call it News of the Week in Review. <laughs> it was a Jewish couple and they had a Shabbat dinner every Friday. And after they put the their son to bed, they would have the News of the Week in, the, in Review where they could talk about whatever they felt the need to talk about that impacted their relationship. And I think that's a great habit. Um, and maybe if you're not good at face-to-face interaction, it's an internet blog that that's open only to the two of you or Mm. emails back and forth or leaving notes 
or whatever, but you have to make space to open the discussion at a time when emotions are not flying high. Yeah. And once you've sort of turned the lock in that key, turned the key in that lock rather, um, Mm -hmm. then you have to sit down and start talking about what it is you mean, what it is you want. Um, Sex therapists use an exercise called yes, no, maybe that works for almost any kind of sexual negotiation. In fact, I would say it works for any kind of social sexual negotiation okay. where the two of you sit down. I like to use one of those giant pads of paper, the kind that go on an easel and you write down all the kinds of things that you can think of that anybody might want to do in sex or in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, even the things that you know you would never want to, you know, scat play or whatever that you would never, yeah. you know, it, it still goes on the list. Um, and then the next thing that happens when you've got the list done is each of you takes a different color marker and next to each thing you put a Y, an N, or an M for yes, no, or maybe. And you'll find that there's a lot of things that both of you will have said no to and those mm-hmm. just get tabled. You know, if <laughs> this is a discussion that should get reopened from time to time, but for now that stuff is off the table. Uh, the yeses are like, yeah, okay, add it to the agenda for next time. You've just learned something that your partner likes that you like too, that you maybe didn't know about before. Mm-hmm. Way cool. And the maybes, that that's where the discussion comes. What would make me feel okay about doing this? Yes. Maybe if I were turned on enough, maybe if mm. we both knew the person well and trusted them, maybe if we took it really easy in the beginning and, and felt our way into it. Yes. Um, you know, there's a lot of possible ifs there that teach you where this, the zone is to experiment. Yeah. And once you have that experimental zone going, baby steps, you know, you pick the one that feels least threatening Mm -hmm. and you try that. Uh, Maybe it's um, looking at personal ads together. That's a place where a lot of couples start saying, yeah, this one would interest me. What do you think about it? Mm -hmm. Um, You mean like for a threesome setup or something? Is that Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Just, Mm -hmm. you know, no obligations anywhere. You're just playing fantasy game together, looking at the personal ads. Mm -hmm. Um, and then afterwards you sit down again and talk about how that felt. Did it feel safe? Did it feel unsafe? Where did you feel problems coming up? What felt easy? And so, okay, you've conquered, conquered that baby step. You may have found that it was too much, um, in which case try a different baby step, or you may have found that it was easy enough that you feel able to go on to something a little more challenging. Mm -hmm. But the main thing is to just go into it an inch at a time and check in often. Yeah. And I feel like that's what we said in the beginning of this conversation. I think um, that it can look so many different ways, right? It doesn't Mm -hmm. have to be, oh yeah, now we are polyamorous. That means each week you sleep with 10 other people, (laughs) but it can also be, I mean, I know, I know couples who, for example, do, there's no, intercourse with another partner but there is oral sex or what you know whatever you can like come yeah, up with absolutely. I'm assuming. i know one couple where um one partner granted her asshole to the other partner so ah. nobody nobody else was allowed to play with her asshole unless the partner gave permission yeah yeah so you know i think a lot of people who are in um a live-in relationship or a long-term relationship will find probably not necessarily that there are things they want to keep to do with just the one person. It's a yeah. way of affirming the bond. Um, so maybe that's 
PV intercourse. Certainly if, if um, getting pregnant is on the agenda, you probably wanna keep that to the person that you wanna get pregnant with. Um, but I, in my last long-term poly relationship, we had an agreement for most of it that um, as long as we were both in town, we would sleep together. Mm -hmm. um, I, I didn't like the idea of either of us sleeping in anybody else's bed mm -hmm. or having our partners in our bed. I was fine with him having his partners in our bed when I was away from home. Oh, but, okay. Yeah, uh, but I didn't like the idea of either of us sleeping anyplace else when we were both around. Yes. Yeah, totally. And I mean, I think there's so many things, even if you would be completely monogamous, right, that are similar, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. I did some phone consulting once with a guy who was trying to open his relationship, and he had a female partner who was being very reluctant. Mm -hmm. And he called me up one day. He was a, a kink bottom, a, a masochist. Mm -hmm. He called me up one day just ecstatic, saying, she says, I can go see a pro professional dominatrix. Um, yes. And I, I, sex workers are often a really good solution when there's that kind of disparity. Um, and I said, cool, but do me one favor. Before you go see the pro-dom, check in with your partner about what things are okay for you to do with the pro-dom and what things yes. aren't. And he called me back a few days later, sounding very down. And it <laughs> turned out that for his partner, any touching of the genital, genitals was too much. For what mm. you feel. And his primary mode of masochism was uh, cock and ball torture. So they were. Oh, uh, that's were a problem. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So I never did hear the rest of that story. He stopped calling after that. I don't know how they managed, but it was very typical of the kinds of things that can happen when you don't define your terms. Yes, a thousand. I mean, I think it's so interesting this whole negotiation in general, right? Which I think I guess I mentioned this a little bit earlier about intimacy, and then we talked about your celibacy. I think there's this emotional intimacy needs to be there in order for us to like negotiate our terms sexually but yeah. there's this huge um, trust so yes trust. and the, and the opportunity though to get so much deeper for lack of a better term yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and closer to your partner if you find out these things together but yeah. cl clearly i mean i think one thing that people mention a lot i think when they hear about polyamory is jealousy course that um yeah what would you recommend for people who are afraid that that will um you know that that setup will really make them jealous or they wouldn't be able to deal with that aspect of it i i just read the most marvelous quote by my colleague allison moon who wrote girl sex 101 um and what she said was that jealousy is like the check engine life light on your car. It doesn't mean the car is dead and will never drive again. It doesn't mean you have necessarily have to pull off the road right then and call emergency services. It means that there's something that needs to be looked at soon. Hmm. Yeah. And I think that's a great metaphor for jealousy. In terms of dealing with it, um, our culture teaches us that jealousy is not survivable. Um, we don't believe that about any other difficult emotion. People survive anger, people survive grief, people survive terror, um, because we learn. We learn how to take care of ourselves when we're feeling that agitated. Um, a thing to know about jealousy, we, we use it as though it always meant the same thing. It really doesn't. Um, different people's jealousy 
presents very differently. For some people, it might be territoriality. That's mine. You can't have it. Mm-hmm. Um, for some, it might be insecurity. I'm afraid you're going to leave me and I'll be by myself. It might be um, competitiveness. That's usually how my jealousy presents is competitiveness. Mm-hmm. She can take that. I can take a lot more than that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it's very difficult to start to confront your jealousy until you tease apart what it actually is. Yes. The only mm-hmm. thing all the forms of jealousy have in common is the feeling that I feel terrible and it's your fault. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And the thing that most people do is ask their partner to change their behavior so that they don't have to feel bad anymore. Mm-hmm. And what that means is that you never learn to take care of yourself when you feel bad. They tend not to work anyway. Uh, you know, really... monogamous people got jealous too. Yeah, and it's not really your response. It's not really your partner's responsibility to make you feel good. You know, like partially, yeah. yes, but not truly. In the sense that, if you're ethical with each other and honest, right? That's that's your partner's responsibility. But some parts are really just yours to um, to find out. Yeah, yeah, and exactly. Fix. And it's fine to ask for help. Yes. Um, you know, I'm feeling really insecure. I, it would really help me if. Before you go sleep with them and after you come back, if you reassured me that you loved me. Yes. And maybe we can spend a, a special date together to reconnect after that. You know, and that's just one example of, of a way that you could ask for help. Um, it may be that the person you need help with is not your partner. You, yeah. I would suggest having some poly community around you, whether it's online or in person, who, when you call up saying, <clears throat> you know, she was out with somebody else last night and I'm really having a hard time. They're not going to say something like, well, what do you expect? You're doing this weird poly shit. Do you think it was going to be easy? Uh, Mm -hmm. What you want is someone who will say, wow, yeah, that does sound hard. Let's talk about what you're feeling and what might be able to help you. Yeah. Um, This is actually also, this is also a question somebody asked um, about community, how to find like-minded people. Uh, enter the name of the nearest medium size or larger town to you into Google, along with the words polyamory munch. Munch, okay. Munch is the keyword. Munches were developed in the kink community as being a place where kinky people can sit together in a non-sexual environment and just talk, which is oh, cool. huge, hugely important. Um, yeah. It's a chance to find out from people who have been doing it longer than you have how they're doing it. It's yeah. a chance to ask questions that you might not know anybody else you can, who you can ask. Yeah. Um, that kind of community. If you are closeted, you might have to do it online instead. Mm-hmm. I'm but, sure they exist online, right? I mean, oh, absolutely. When we say baby steps, maybe the baby step is to go into an online community and ask a question. Yes. And then just see how the reaction is and how comfortable you feel with that interaction. And then the in-person one might be like the second step or the fifth, whatever you need to get to that place. Yes. Um, somebody asked about a sexless marriage. The partner wants to stay monogamous, but I need sex. This What's is next? where <laughs> budget permitting a sex worker is a really good fit for that situation. Mm. Um, sex workers have boundaries of iron. They have to, to do the work they do. They are not going to out you. They are not going to try to break up your marriage. Um, a, a, a genuine professional, not just someone who's trying to pull a buck on the side, yes. um, is invaluable in a situation like that. Um, failing that, 
some couples fall into a don't ask, don't tell, mm. um, which a lot of poly educators are really down on don't ask, don't tell. I am not. I've seen it work for enough couples. And Really? Oh, yeah. Um, oh, interesting. I would have never guessed that that works for a lot of people long term. You know, I just for people of my generation, it's been working for decades. Um, <laughs> okay. You know, it's usually the husband, not always, but usually uh, who mm. is feeling the need for sex that the spouse um, won't or can't provide. And it, it just turns into a situation where, you know, she's kind of aware that he's out um getting done every week um and the 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 guy i was closest to who was in such a relationship said back in the very beginning she said i don't ever want to know about this i don't ever want to hear about it um if you if i see your name in the paper this you know you're out of here um but they've been going on like that he's a spankophile and he's been seeing spanking pros for decades Mm. his wife doesn't want to spank him and he really really needs to get spanked so there it is. It worked fine. They have enough money that it's not a budget constraint, <laughs> yeah. which a lot of folks don't. Um, yes. If you go to a sex worker, right. And you have to pay for that service. Yeah. I mean, yeah. That's kind of the definition of sex worker. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you could get spanked by somebody, you know, to you just meet. Like there might be some possibilities for barter, <laughs> but you know, I've known sex workers who offer their services you know, on a barter basis for something that the, the client knows how to do that can help them. Mm, um, yeah. Marketing. (laughs) Marketing or cleaning or, you know, there's there's all kinds of options. Um, Yeah. But uh, failing that, you just have to do the baby steps. Ask the the partner who is sexless, um, what doesn't feel too threatening to you for me to go do? Mm -hmm. Um, Would you be okay with me going to a peep show and masturbating? Would you be okay with me having cyber sex with somebody? Um, you know, those are fairly low key entryways mm-hmm. toward having some sort of a sex life that isn't going to be too threatening to the primary relationship. Yeah. Um, if if the sexless partner just utterly digs in their heels and uh, is not interested, a poly friendly therapist or a mm-hmm. divorce. Yeah, that's about all I can suggest. Yes, yeah, it's true. I mean, obviously, there's 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 non-negotiables, you know, if you yeah. at one point, yeah. I suppose there's also cheating, which frankly I did at the end of my first marriage when my kink needs were overwhelming. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I didn't know whether it was an itch that once I scratched it, it was going to go away. So I wasn't going to end my marriage over it until I knew the answer to that question. And so I, I fooled around with a few people and then I knew the answer to the question and we split up. Um, yeah. But it would be naive of me to say cheating doesn't happen. And sometimes it enables a person to stay married that might otherwise not be able to. Yeah. But it's not ideal. No, it really uh, is not. A, no, lie, I mean... a, a lie kind of erodes the, the fabric of a marriage really fast. Yes, yes. And I think there's also clearly some unspoken things within your relationship and that probably goes beyond sex i would think yeah things that you don't talk about needs that you don't mention and can't communicate yes um, that can be also emotional right absolutely well you know a polypositive therapist or at least a, an open-minded therapist can be gold 
um, yes. in that sort of situation. Mm. And it may be that the conclusion you reach at the end of your time with your polypositive therapist is that you need to not be together. That was what happened with my first husband and me. We saw a therapist for a while. And by the time we had talked it all through, it was clear that we were not being good to each other and it yes. was time to move on. Yeah. Um, or it may be that there are problems that can be solved. Totally. Um, another question uh, was, why can it be more common? Um, the, the person was also saying, is capitalism to blame or a scarcity mindset? Um, scarcity mindset, I have a whole different rant I can do about that. <laughs> and actually, I'm working on an article right now about it. Um, but it's very difficult to swim upstream against a culture that leads so strongly to monogamy. Yes. I mean, we all grew up with essentially no models for <laughs> other than monogamous relationships. That's totally uh, some, true. Some of the younger people are getting some now, but you know, when I was growing up, it was Ozzy and Harriet. It was uh, Rob and Laura Petrie. It, you know, it was it was hardcore monogamy, yes. and so to get to the point where you're saying, "Well, that's stupid," <laughs> it, it may take a while. The earliest people I saw go into poly when I was um, first starting out had almost all come to it through science fiction, specifically through Heinlein. We used to oh. get so many of those people back in the day because, you know, Heinlein wrote about um, multi-partner relationships. He wrote about them a lot and he was kind of an asshole in person, but <laughs> he was the the wedge in the door that made it possible for people to start talking more freely. There's a yes. big overlap between science fiction community and poly community or was back then. So um, interesting. Yeah. Somebody wrote, which I feel like... Um wrote in and said, do you have, do you ever have sex with all your partners at once? And clearly. Uh, rarely. rarely. Um, yeah. I've done a couple of threesomes. I did a, a scene once with uh, Dossie and a couple of her gay male friends, which was spectacular. Mm -hmm. I, I'm strongly attuned to gay male sexuality. So getting to play with a couple of gay men is just heaven for me. Um, oh, and Mostly I find threesomes and moresomes kind of frustrating. Mm -hmm. There's always a part of me that's keeping track of how much time each person has gotten in the middle. Well, you said you're competitive. So. <laughs> I, I am competitive, but also I am um, a little bit legalistic, I guess. It, you know, I, it's hard to pay attention to two people at once. It is. I guess that's what it boils down to. I've done kink scenes where I'm topping two people at once and it's really hard. It's exhausting. Because yes. when you're topping, you're paying attention to all these little nuances and breaths and pupil dilations and how tense their muscles are and what sounds they're making. And doing that with two people at once, that's a bitch. It's really hard. <laughs> so I mostly don't anymore. And that's why. But the same goes for, for vanilla sex with, with more than one person. I'm just not yeah. much into it. Yeah, I did one scene once with a group that is one of the memories I hold fondest. I was speaking at um, a conference up in Canada and the friend that I was staying with found me and said, there's something kind of interesting going on tonight. Are you in? And she knew me well enough that she would know whether I would like something or I, I said, sure. And it turned out that the project was there were a bunch of us women in a room along with um, a large man who the, the idea was he wanted to be able to fist his tiny little wife for the first time. 
Mm-hmm. And so all us women, we held up our hands against each other to see who had the smallest hands and who the largest. And we, we lined ourselves up in order and we each took turns fisting her and also, you know, turning her on and holding her and, and cherishing her and getting her all loose and happy and relaxed. I have very large hands for a woman. So I went last. And by the time <laughs> I was done with her, um, he was able to step up and have his hand in her for the first time. Mm, okay. And it was so joyous. I, I, I start to tear up when I talk about it. It was, it was just all of us helping this incredibly loving scene happen for the first time. Mm. Um, so I, I wouldn't call that being with all my partners at once, but it was with a lot of people and I loved it. Yeah. I think that's the, that's the, the crux of it all, right? It's all so, um, so personal. Yeah. Because that's the thing. I feel like you have to just start to become more intimate with yourself and your needs and with your partner's needs in order to even find these ways. What fits for you? What fits yeah, for you exactly. today? What is it tomorrow? Like you said, you'd, you're only looking ahead like a week from now yeah. that you leave yourself alone in the sense that you're like, I'm open to whatever comes next. Yeah. Um whatever urge or need or desire comes up and to not judge yourself experiment. for those. Yeah, yes. there, there's much to be said for just trying something to see how it feels. Yeah, and you might not like it, but then you don't have to do it again. Yeah, exactly. So <laughs> as, as long as you're not, as long as you haven't withdrawn consent, just try it out. I mean, you know, what is it? A, a couple hours out of your life. <laughs> do you have some tips for like people who feel ashamed for their desires? Like how to deal with that aspect of it? Oh God, shame. Um, <laughs> it's a hard one. Huh? It really is. Uh, I'm, and I'm having to think about this. Again, it's so difficult in a culture that is so strongly monogamy oriented not mm-hmm. to feel ashamed for not being that. Yeah. Um, or to have an unconventional sexual desire. Um, which, you know, let's face it, most people do. I just wanted to say, I think really. Yeah, <laughs> I, I don't think I've ever met a fully vanilla person in my life. My, my first husband probably comes as close as anyone. And I know a little bit about how his fantasies run. And I would say that is not a vanilla man. Um, but, <laughs> but he lives a very vanilla life. Um, being allowed to talk about them hmm. is a huge pathway out of shame and that may be just finding like-minded people on the internet on fat life um in i mean facebook is making it tougher and tougher to talk about sex yes um but finding like-minded people either locally or online that share your desires and who are not as ashamed as you are Mm -hmm. and hearing them talk about their desires with joy that's incredibly freeing yeah, because then you don't feel alone, right? Yeah. I mean, that's like the biggest thing. I think constantly about sexuality in general, I think if you begin talking about it, you'll just find out, like you said, I think like everybody has fantasies that they don't think are okay or that they, yeah. they don't, that they might think they nobody else bring, have. Yeah, I've never had a consensual fantasy in my life at age 66. And I've also never done a non-consensual scene. So a lot of people who have extreme fantasies need some help in figuring out ways to bring them into reality in a way that's safe and consensual. Yes. Um, And that's another place where community can come in very handy. Yeah. I think we just um, have a really 
I'm sorry to say it like that fucked up value system in our society yeah. <laughs> where it becomes very difficult for people to feel, um, I mean, normal, quote unquote, but at least appreciated and, um, and I think lovable, you know, for who they are. I spent a little time working the phone lines at San Francisco Sex Information back in the day. Mm -hmm. And the vast majority of the calls we took were some variation on am I normal? Yes. And yes. nobody's normal. <laughs> we can't be. We're, we're just different. All of us are different. Yes. I think that's such a good point to make. I mean, and for any, like for everybody who's listening to, to really think about that a little bit, you know, that it's all okay. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's all okay. As long as everybody's consenting. Exactly. Um, exactly. I just wanted to say <laughs> everybody is able to give consent, you know, if they're drunk or underage or um, impaired, then they can't give meaningful consent. But if you're with another grown up who is, not altered in any way uh, by drugs or booze or whatnot, and who can otherwise function in the world, then both of you get consent and have fun. Yes. Or all of you, if there's 12 people like that, then <laughs> exactly. go for it. Um, last, the last thing, um, just as a, a button to this whole thing, the whole conversation, um, what would be your three... Um, biggest or I mean it could be five I don't know yeah recommends for people or like you know to give them as advice no matter if they're polyamorous or not or like sexual uh, like with their sexuality yeah find community that's mm -hmm. the number one um look for pathways out of shame yes and learn how to take care of yourself mm. Yes, I love that. Yeah, we talk about taking care of ourselves as though it's always bubble baths or whatnot. There's a lot of stating boundaries and having them respected is mm -hmm. a really good way to take care of yourself. Yes. Um, learning what you want and what you don't want and learning how to ask for those things. That's a really good way to take care of yourself. Bubble baths are nice too. <laughs> but, but they're sort of surface level taking care. You need to do that. <clears throat> the deep taking care of as well yes i love that yeah i think there's even even with sexuality i think that's why masturbation or any kind of like self-love care you you want another do. great way of taking care of yourself right and i think that it's also such an important step to get to know your body and to be able to communicate with your partner yeah when i was quite young um well not quite i, I when i was old enough to see porn so in my late teens um I got really startled because all the women in all the porn masturbated face up. I mm. masturbate face down, always have. And I thought there was something wrong with me. Oh, interesting. So, you know, mm -hmm. it was years and years and years later since until I was in an environment that I felt safe asking that. And there were a bunch of other women there. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes complete sense. I mean, we just, I mean, Porn is some kind of a fantasy that is not really reflective necessarily of real life. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, some, some of my best friends are in porn and make porn and porn is good. Um, but the fact that so many people have, it's, it's their only access to anything like sex information. Yeah. You know, it, it's become sort of a cliche, but a lot of people say that's like studying for your driving, driving test by watching the fast and the furious. <laughs> <laughs> I love that actually. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, 
as the parent of young men, I don't kid myself that they didn't watch porn. In fact, I know they did. I caught them at it a few times. Um, but I would have hated for them to have the idea that that was what sex looked like. And I think these days when porn is so much more accessible and, and has also grown by and large rougher and more violent in mainstream porn, mm. there's, there's harm that gets done by kids not getting any better information than they can get there. Yeah, for sure. The, um, the TV show Sex Education, which I adore. I love um, that show. Yeah. Well, of course, being a sex ed educator mom <laughs> with a teenage boy myself or a couple of them back in the day, they're, they're not teenagers anymore. Uh, obviously, it was something I wanted to watch. But seeing what good sex information can do for people. Yes. I mean, the show is a little bit unrealistically optimistic, but it's still lovely to watch. And I wish everybody watched it. Yeah. Well, everybody should. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to me today. You're quite welcome. It was a what pleasure. A, yeah, what a pleasure. Um, could you tell me really quick, or the listeners, how they can find your work? Um, I am currently blogging my work in progress at sluffandsons.com, <laughs> the name of my next book, which is about raising my sons during the time that I was becoming well-known as a sex writer and educator. I love um, it. My other books uh, can all be found in all the major bookstores. Um, also on, most of them are on Audible. Okay, um, great. And the, the ones on Audible are all read by Dossie and me, by the way. So oh, you cool. want to hear what, what our voices sound like, that's where you find out. Um, other than that, I have a website that I don't maintain very well at JanetWHardyAuthor.com. Okay, great. But it is there. And I'm, I'm, I'm active on Facebook. So I have a personal Facebook page and a professional one. So if you want to hear me talking about what I'm cooking for dinner, go to the <laughs> personal one. If you want to hear me talk about uh, my next speaking engagement, go to the professional one. <laughs> That's great. All right. Thank you so much again. You're quite welcome. Good to talk to you, Laura. Amen. Thank you guys so much for joining us today on Pillow Talk. You can find links to my incredible guest, Janet Hardy's work in the show notes. If you like today's show, please head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It helps us keep the show going. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would be amazing too. See you next Sunday. 